As many of you know, last week there was a terrible tragedy in Texas as a man came into a church building outside of San Antonio and murdered 27 people. I think as I've reflected this last week about that event and what I'd want to say to you all as a church in light of things like this, I kept thinking that what we covered last week was probably everything that I would tell you in light of that situation. In other words, as I've reflected on it, I've started thinking about how when we zoom in on suffering and evil, and you start really just looking at that situation, I don't have answers as to what makes sense. I don't, I don't have good answers as to how God's going to turn that for good. I don't have answers. The more you zoom in, the more dark it gets that somebody would do something like this. And then I've found it so helpful to zoom back out and see that no matter how dark the picture gets at times in this world, no matter how evil, God is a God who cares. And he has shown that most clearly by sending his son Jesus to take on evil and suffering in his own body. And so I don't know about you, for those of you that weren't here last week, our study in Ruth was, I think, one of the most timely sermons I could have ever preached. To think that here we are gathering, and we're just going through the next book of the Bible that's been slotted on the preaching schedule. We open up Ruth and we're seeing and considering the providence of God in the face of evil and suffering and pain. And one of the first things I hear after I leave church is this awful shooting in Texas. And I felt like there was nothing better that I could have done from God's word to help prepare us as a congregation for that news. And whether it's that news or any other news, I've had personal news in my family getting reports about a family member who's been in the hospital It's been extremely discouraging to zoom in on that situation and hear about the pain and suffering that's going on in my family's life. I needed last week's message to put it another way. I hope you have considered the wonderful truth of zooming out and seeing the beauty of God's goodness. And we're going to continue now our study in Ruth. And I wanted to bring that up because I think If we just keep preaching through the Bible, keep working through books, we will allow God's Spirit to use His Word to build this church, and there will be times where it will seem as if it was like God's divine appointment that you or us needed to hear that message. But it was just such a a good encouragement to me as a, a preacher of God's Word to know, let's just stay faithful to preach the Word week in and week out. Go through the next text, and so that's what we're going to do here this morning. And my hope and prayer is that as we continue to consider these four reversals in Ruth, last week we saw the first one, from death to life. This week we will see another one, from widowed to married. And in last week's message, we considered the death to life to reversal, as it started out the story in chapter 1, telling us the details in the first five verses of this chapter, There's a lot of sin and darkness in this particular family, the family of Elimelech, and that his wife, Naomi, and then their daughters-in-law, who get married to their two sons. Essentially, everybody dies. 
it's left in such utter despair. But then we zoomed out and we looked at the end of the story in chapter 4 and it completely turned around. The whole thing was a reverse opposite, like looking into a mirror. And that's again what we're going to see again today. We're going to look at the next section. So we're going to kind of move our way one step in and see a little bit more of chapter 1 and a little bit more of chapter 4. And I think you'll see yet again that there's a mirror here. Two paralleling stories that contrast with one another of a reversal. And this one takes widowhood. It's a woman that is a widow. Two of them, actually. But then one of them that becomes married. And so let's just dive in and you'll see exactly what I mean. We're going to first look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. And I want us to notice the sacrificial love of Ruth in chapter 1. When we skip over to chapter 4, I want you to notice the sacrificial love of a man named Boaz who wants to marry and then does marry Ruth. And then lastly, I want us to step back again. I want us to wonder in amazement as we consider how both of these characters, both Ruth and Boaz, point us to a greater sacrificial love in the person of Jesus. So the sacrificial love of Ruth, the sacrificial love of Boaz, and then ultimately we need to see these reflected in Jesus. First, the sacrificial love of Ruth. Turn with me in your Bibles. Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 18. This is the next little segment of the Ruth story. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, she being Naomi. They returned to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you might find rest, each one of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. 
If you want to take notes or even just in your head, I want you to jot down in terms of this story four key ideas that are going to parallel in chapter four. So number one, notice an opportunity to bless Naomi. Number one, notice an opportunity to bless Naomi. It comes up. There is a food and harvest opportunity in Bethlehem again. There is food. There's, there's something good happening. That's how this story starts. Verse 6, it ends very dark and gloomy. There's no food in Bethlehem. There's famine. They had to leave and go to Moab. They went eastward. They had everybody die off. It's now just Naomi and her two kids, her daughters-in-law. And you see in verse 6 that she hears in the fields of Moab that the Lord visited his people and had given them food. So Naomi's family can return back to their home and establish their family. There's, there's hope for Naomi. There's an opportunity. Second thing we see. Two family members initial, initially want to help support Naomi. Two family members. Who are they? Ruth and Orpah, daughters-in-law. They both initially start going. Do you see this? Verse 7 So they all set out, so Naomi and the two daughters-in-law, and they went out on the way. And then Naomi tells them to go back, and they say, no, we're going to stay with you. In verse 9 and 10, you see that they're kissing each other, and they're weeping. This is very emotional. This is not an easy decision. And in verse 10, both of them say, no, we will return to you, with you and your people. And then they have this back and forth, but notice that there are two family members, And they're both initially deciding, yeah, we're going to help support Naomi. It's the second thing. Third thing, one of the family members sticks it out. One of them deserts Naomi's family. So Orpah turns back. As Naomi says, no, I insist. When marriage is mentioned, things change. So the turning point here is they're both going with Naomi, and then marriage is mentioned, and then Naomi has Orpah leave her and Ruth stay. You see that at the very end of verse 14. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So an opportunity to bless Naomi's family, to receive blessing again. Second, two family members initially wanting to help support Naomi. Third, one family member, when marriage is mentioned, says, see ya, no thanks. And fourth, one of the family members makes a sacrificial decision to support Naomi, gives an amazing speech, just beautiful words of love and commitment. And that's what we see with Ruth in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Do you see those four storylines? Keep those in mind. But before we move on to chapter 4, I want to point out why I use the language of sacrificial love and that this decision on Ruth is sacrificial. Can you all figure it out? 
What's the sacrifice that Ruth is making by saying, yes, I will go with you? Namely, not getting married. That's the issue in chapter 1, is it not? Naomi is telling her, both her daughters-in-law, go back to your families, find new husbands. Your first husbands have died. Go get remarried and establish yourselves. Now, why why would that matter? Well, imagine you're living 3,000 years ago. Imagine you're living in a patriarchal, very man-centered world for the most part. Remember that women don't normally do the bringing home of the food and the salary and the finances. Remember that men are going to be the providers of protection. So the prospect of Ruth not getting married isn't just that she'll say single the rest of her life and oh, this is sad for singles. Hold on that for a moment. No, it's that she will be vulnerable, that she will be open to abuse. If you flip your eyes over to chapter 2, verse 22, notice how Naomi tells Ruth later on in the story. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Do you see what's going on in this Ruth story is that Ruth being a single woman with no husband, she is now vulnerable for anybody to assault her, And you fill in the blanks with your own imagination of what kind of assault, but I think it's easy for us to figure out all kinds of things, physical, sexual, financial, ripping her off. She's vulnerable. She's weaker. So the whole focus of this decision is about the marriage, and Orpah decides, yeah, I'm going back. I'm getting married. It's a good point you brought up. See ya. Ruth, however, decides, nope. I'll go. And even though the prospects of getting married and having a family again don't look very good, because where is she going back? Naomi's home. Where's Naomi's home? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is an Israelite nation. Moabites and Israelites, do they get along very well? Did we read Deuteronomy chapter 23 on accident, or is that intentional? What should the Moabite person be treated like? For ten generations, don't even let them enter the presence of the Lord. Do you understand what's going on in Israelites' mind? Moabite people, do not associate with them. We do not mix with Moabite people. So you think anybody back in Bethlehem is going to marry Ruth? Ruth knows it. Orpah knows it. One of them decides to go. One of them decides to stay. Look at the way the book represents this fact again and again. Chapter 1, verse 4. Follow along with me. Chapter 1, verse 4. These took Moabite wives. What kind of wives were they? Say it. Moabite. Chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, fill it in. Ruth the Moabite. You guys follow me. Let's, let's, let's stay awake, okay? Let's go to the next one. Chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite. Chapter 2, verse 6. It says... And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman. Let's turn over to chapter 2, verse 21, where we see here the same idea. And Ruth the Moabite. Chapter 4, verse 5, if you turn a page, you'll notice at the end of the story, talking about who's getting married. You'll see, then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the the Moabite. Let's not forget that fact before you get married. Chapter 4, verse 10. 
Also, Ruth the... Okay, friends, this is not an accident. This book is very artfully and literarily designed, and the fact that you have these repeated emphasis, it's like saying, fill the American. Like, do we have to make that clear every time? Or, or whatever else you want to fill in the blank, like Ruth the Moabite. It's almost like you could hear them say it with a little hiss in their voice. The Moabite. This is why this is a huge sacrificial decision on Ruth's part. No one will marry her. No one will then support her. No one will then protect her. She's on her own with an old mom, Naomi. Now you know why Orpah did what she did. But do you know why Naomi did, why Ruth did what she did? And I think her speech gives us the clue. When you look back at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you see these very important words. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. We don't know when, but it seems very clear that Ruth is a changed woman who has been converted to now worship the one true God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. Notice the contrast between verse 15 and verse 16. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her what? God's little G. To the many multiple gods that the people of Moab worship, like we mentioned last week. Some of those were like the fertility gods. Orpah's going back to her people and her gods. And Ruth says, no, I want to go to your people and your God. That is now my God. This is the difference. Ruth stays with Naomi even if it means never getting married because she wants to worship Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true creator of heaven and earth. This woman has been changed from the inside out, and therefore she's expressing that change with sacrificial love to Naomi. Verse 17, I think, is one of the most powerful verses in the whole book. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Anything but death. I am going to stick by your side, and the only thing that will stop me is if death comes. It's like in all those TV shows or movies where somebody's like, if you want to get to them, you've got to get through me. You've got to kill me over my dead body. That kind of language is what we have here from Ruth. She's saying there's nothing that's going to part us. The only thing that possibly could is death. What commitment, what sacrifice. She's willing to essentially then die for her. It's no wonder that the rest of the book then celebrates Ruth's decision as an amazing act of love. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 with me. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Do you see what's going on later in the story? Word has spread about this decision that Ruth made. The community knows. This this is jaw-dropping. This is, wow, what love, what sacrifice. And Boaz finds out. And he is impressed. In fact, we saw this last week in chapter 4. Turn over to chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Notice the way the ladies of the the town in Bethlehem talk about Ruth. Then the woman said to Naomi, 
Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, and see the language here, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. The story of Ruth is quite clear. It is a story of sacrificial love from a woman who makes a decision to choose to die to herself, literally, willing to put her life on the line for the sake of helping someone else because she has a new God, she has a new goal, a new agenda, a new purpose. That's part one, the sacrifice of Ruth, the sacrificial love of Ruth. Now that we're in chapter four, let's stay right there, and I'm gonna read for you verses one through 12 and see if you do not notice a very similar pattern as we saw in this First part, second part of chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sir, down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, and I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Do you remember the four parts of chapter 1? Number one, an opportunity to bless the family of Naomi comes up. Chapter 4 starts out with an opportunity to bless Naomi's family. As you see in verses 1 through 3, Naomi is selling her land, and there's an opportunity to receive it, but not just the land. This is not about somebody taking land and saying, okay, I'm going to expand my land ownerships over in 
ancient Israel. This is about taking on Naomi's family and taking on the care of Naomi, including her daughter-in-law. So this is much more than just a land exchange. And so this is an opportunity to care for and bless Naomi's family. And what we have, number two, in this story is two family members, two kinsmen redeemers. One of them we don't know the name of, and the other one we do. His name's Boaz. Both of them initially seem interested in this property and caring for Naomi. Both of them say, yes, I will redeem it. Boaz is setting up this whole deal because he wants to redeem it, and if this guy doesn't, then he's next in line. So we already know Boaz wants to redeem the land and care for Naomi and the family. He's just trying to find out, based on the law, if this guy should take care of it first, and if he wants it, well, then it's his. And what's his answer, he says in verse 4? Well, I do want it. So then he hears about a marriage. Number three. One family member then turns away from supporting Naomi because marriage is mentioned. Look at verses 5 and 6. You see in verse 5 and 6, Boaz says, Now remember, if you buy this field, then you'll also have to require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. And then you'll have to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And he's like, whoa, hold on. No, 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 I'm not interested anymore. And look how explicit he is in verse 6. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Oh, that's not going to be good for me. I don't want to give up my name and my family and my rights for helping this other person. Boaz, it's all yours, buddy. Number four, one family member makes a sacrificial decision to support Naomi. And he gives such a great speech about it. You see that in verses 7 through 12, where Boaz describes that he wants to, and he tells everyone, you're all now witnesses. I am now going to take on this family, Naomi, and I will perpetuate the name, if you see in verse 10. And he is not at all worried, like this other kinsman redeemer, about impairing his own family name for the sake of continuing another. He doesn't, he doesn't care. Sacrificial love. He's willing to marry the Moabite no matter what social stigma this may be. Before we move on to our third and final point about the sacrificial love of Jesus, I hope you're seeing these parallel accounts, two amazing stories of parallel, mirrored-like pictures of incredible human love. And I think it should challenge us. So here's three lessons for you to take away from these stories. Number one, Ruth is a widow. And she chose to continue to be a widow because when God is your God, being married is not ultimate. How about that for a lesson? How many times, especially in church cultures or traditional conservative cultures, do people uplift marriage and make single people feel really like, well, if only I got married. How many little jabbing comments have some of you who are single heard like, oh, so when's the guy or girl into the picture. Like, what's, is there something wrong with you? And you get these, like, condemning thoughts and conversations. Friends, we may be guilty of that ourselves. Be careful how you talk to singles. Singleness in Scripture is not seen as this awful thing. Ruth here is an excellent model for us to say, listen, I know I might stay single the rest of my life, but I worship your God, and I care about you, Naomi. So if you're widowed, if you're single, if you're divorced, and not able to remarry, 
take comfort from the words of Scripture. Not just this story, but all of the Bible speaks a message of, yes, uplifting the beauty and the glory of marriage, but also read 1 Corinthians 7 later today and see how Paul talks about the beauty and goodness of singleness. There is no shame, my friend, if you're here today and you're a single man or woman. You can stay unmarried because you, my friend, have a corner on something me married, us married folk don't have, which is our future inheritance. All of us will one day be single, humanly speaking. All of us will just have our marriage with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. The better you know your future, the better you can live in your present. Is that true of you? Married or single, do you know what your future is? Your future is human singleness and marriage to Jesus Christ. So single people can teach us married folks a little thing about how to have all of your acceptance and all of your joy and all of your life flowing from the one true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And there are so many great models of that throughout church history and even in the church today. Friends, I would challenge all of us to look at Ruth and her decision to stay single and it not be like, well, what's wrong with her? That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, Ruth is a Moabite. The first lesson was about Ruth being a widowed, a chosen widowed. She could have chosen to go get married, but she decided to pursue a life of potentially permanent singleness. Really low chances that she was going to get married. Second thing we see, she had no choice over. She's just a Moabite. It's just who she was. She was born into a Moabite family. Does this story not drip with applications for us who live in a world where racism and cultural barriers between people to love one another are, are all up in our face every day? Is Ruth not an excellent book for us to be meditating on when we consider issues in the United States about blacks and whites that have plagued our history? Or as we think about the global world as we just considered downstairs and the God who is the sovereign God and king of kings over all nations. Ruth is a Moabite. Are you okay with mixed marriages? It seems like Ruth is highlighting that this, this, this book, Ruth, is highlighting this mixed marriage and it leads to not just the king of David, but the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Interesting, isn't it? That Jesus' genealogy comes out of a mixed marriage between an Israelite and a Moabite? Do you have to do a double take when you see interracial couples married? Friend, if so, then there's probably something wrong in your heart. There should be nothing wrong with mixed marriages in the Bible or in our church or in the world. In fact, we should celebrate the increasing diversity that is in the United States of America I don't have any applications for you on what this means for political reasons and debates. If anything, friends, we should make our political statement, Christ is king. We are all citizens of heaven, and heaven is a multinational, all immigrants are welcome kind of community, and so should this church be. Do you realize that this past weekend, November 11th, was Veterans Day? But have you seen American flags all over the place and soldiers being paraded around and us celebrating our patriotism here at Embassy Church? Well, well no. Not, not because we don't, like Fred did, pray and thank God for the troops that have given us the freedoms that we have, but because primarily we're not Americans. Primarily our allegiance is not to the United States of America. We do not say the pledge to the flag. We say the pledge to Christ. 
Has, has this dripped down into your heads and hearts, friends? Do you care more about the upcoming elections that happen every year or more about the election of God who saves sinners? Friends, this is our calling as Christians, to see the God of the Bible in this way, the global God of the Bible. Ruth is a Moabite. How awesome is that? That Jesus comes from a mixed marriage and that cultural barriers like this can be taken down when you consider the whole story of Scripture and the gospel message that comes to all kinds of people who are foreigners and far out. How much more do we need to hear this today? Lesson number three, Ruth the woman. Ruth the widow. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the woman. Do you realize there's a book of the Bible named after a woman? In a patriarchal man domineering society. Do you realize that last week we saw in chapter 4, if you want, look at it again. In chapter 4, the end of the story, we just read it just a moment ago in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Worth more to you than the perfect family is what we looked at last week when we saw that phrase. One woman is worth more than a perfect family. Do you see what Ruth is telling us, this book of the Bible? In an age and a day, 3,000 years ago, when men would have gotten all of the praise, a woman is being praised for her love. So, for us, this is, this is a very careful line for us to walk. I am not going all over the other side. So let's just raise up women above men. Well, that's crazy talk too. All of us are made in God's image, male and female. That's the first page of the Bible. Equality should be something that all Christians should think about in terms of gender, for sure, because of Genesis chapter 1. The inequality that we see throughout the culture and the world is not something that we see encouraged in Scripture. In fact, you see it be subvertively undermined, as if a rug underneath of you is being pulled out and you're being flipped off your feet when you read Ruth. That's what this is like. Ruth, the woman, is worth more than seven sons. She is being exalted and praised for the sacrificial love she did. Yeah. So, so I, want, I want you to see how countercultural that is in that day. I also want you to see how countercultural that is in this day still. You want to know why? Not because we don't elevate women. There's plenty of people that are talking about the equality. And now I know there's, there's all kinds of stuff. So I don't know where you're at, right? Some of you here, all you're hearing is that women are nothing and men are everything, and that's still around today. And, and we're, we're seeing that's, that's not biblical teaching. But we're also seeing this over pendulum swing. Real womanhood is clearly defined here in the Ruth story by sacrificial love. Not by getting rights and holding on to them and telling everybody about your women's rights. No! It's about laying down your life. That's true biblical womanhood. And, in fact, it's true biblical manhood. It's the parallel we see between Ruth and Boaz. You want to be a biblical man or woman, then see in Ruth and Boaz not somebody who wants to hoard it in, but somebody who wants to give it out. All through Scripture, we see that this is the definition par excellence in Jesus himself when he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. True humanity, the true image of God is reflected in Jesus himself. 
And Jesus reflected this not by holding on, but by emptying himself. Not accounting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but pouring out himself as a servant for others. This goes for both male and female, and it's very, very clear, I think, in Ruth and Boaz's character. Sacrificial, self-giving, dying for yourself, taking up your cross. That's countercultural, though, isn't it? Imagine trying to go to a feminist rally and say, yes, the Bible promotes womanhood, but die to yourself, women. Like, that's not going to go over well, I would imagine. So the Bible will always be countercultural because it is creating a whole different culture, a whole different people, a people who are marked by love for God over and above their love for themselves and a love for the things of this world. So who are you? Are you more like Ruth or Orpah? If you're a lady here, you care more about getting married Care more about your family? Care more about your personal securities and comforts over and against doing things that you know God's calling you to? If you're a man in the room, do you care more about your name, power, prestige, having your reputation upheld? Or you say, I could care less. I want to give of myself to serve, and I will even lose my own family name for the sake of serving someone else. Or are you more like Boaz? or that first kinsman redeemer who is named unnamed, so forgettable, so unworthy to even mention his name. Is this the point where we just close down the sermon and say, think on that this week? Who are you more like? Ruth or Orpah? Boaz or the other kinsman redeemer? Be like them. End of sermon, amen. No. How in the world can you end a sermon like that? People do it. I've heard sermons like that all the time, that this story is to tell you how to be more like Ruth or be more like Boaz. Look at their sacrificial love. Oh, it's there. But friend, it is pointing to a much deeper love, a love from Jesus Christ, where Jesus came down into the world. He became a person. And he didn't do that just to teach us how to be loving and say, oh, be like me. Jesus would not have needed to come down from heaven to the earth to just tell you a message, be more like me. He could have done that in any other way. The reason he came down was so that he could give his life as a ransom for many and die. Because we did not just need another lesson about being sacrificially loving. We need sacrificial love to be received from Jesus loving us by dying for us. And that's exactly what we see. Our third and final point is the sacrificial love of Jesus. To become a truly good person like a Ruth or a Boaz, to have your heart changed from the inside out, is to make the God of the Bible your God. And that God is Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you'd like to learn what it means to become a Christian, you need to know that it is not by trying harder to be more like Ruth or trying harder to be more like Boaz. That's what I'm trying to say so explicitly. No, do not take that away as your takeaway from today's message. See that as the path to go forward, but see that you are like a car stuck on the road and you have no fuel to go forward down that path. You're stuck in your sin. How are you going to be more like Ruth or Boaz with no gas in the tank? Answer, receive 
afresh by the power of the Holy Spirit, the sacrificial love of Jesus for you, and that fuels your engine to be more like Ruth and Boaz. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus did not come to the earth to give a great speech and say, I'm willing to die for you. Jesus came down and did die for us. It was not just his words. It was that he actually conquered death. Jesus came and died and he said, I will conquer death. I will raise my body again three days later. And therefore, as remember when Ruth was giving her speech? She said, the only thing that could part us is death. This is why Jesus is the much greater Ruth. Not even death can part us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. When Jesus comes, he doesn't just say, I'm willing to lay down my life. He's saying not even death itself can stop my love for you. What love? What sacrifice? Jesus is the ultimate foreigner. Ruth was a Moabite, an alien, coming from the outside, vulnerable and poor. Could you get any more alien than God coming from heaven to earth? Could you get any more poor than being born in a manger? Not even have enough money to make the normal sacrifice for the child. They just gave the two doves because that's what poor people did when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus forward. Jesus was vulnerable. He was being attacked from every which way, from the moment of his birth. Don't you see in Jesus the greater Ruth? Or how about the greater Boaz, who left his father's family to pay a debt? Is that not what we saw in chapter 4? Boaz sacrificially deciding, I will lose my family inheritance. I don't care if it comes and I, I, I suffer loss in my family's name. I want, to, I want to help pay this debt. That's what the whole redeemer word means, to pay a debt, to purchase the land, to purchase all that was Naomi's family. He used his own resources to care for and sacrifice for her. In a much, much greater way, Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer, purchased our debt, leaving his father's throne. As the great Charles Wesley hymn says, he left his father's throne above he was so free, so infinite is his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Only when you see the sacrificial love of Jesus for you, not just an example of Ruth and Boaz loving Naomi, but that that is just a small echo pointing to the love of Christ for you. Will that fill your tank and help you live your life this week, dying to yourself, sacrificing to others, living single in a world that says singleness is no good, reaching out to people from different ethnicities, caring about others from foreign lands, whatever it might be that may cause us to have opposition or cause us to give sacrifices. Christ has already given that sacrifice. And how much greater is it? This is the way the Bible talks again and again. If he already did that for you, 
There's nothing he's calling you to that even compares to what he did for you. Let that fuel your tank this week. Let's pray together.